Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we're going to talk about a document from the 18th century called The Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen by Olympe de Gouges. This declaration is considered an essential text in the study of human rights, but I had never heard of it until I did this podcast project and looked up a reading list of essential text in human rights and women's rights, and I had never heard the name Olympe de Gouges or this declaration before doing that, and my guess is that most listeners have never heard of this declaration either, even though it is so important in history. So an 18th century declaration that I, of course, had heard of and that most listeners will certainly have heard of is the United States Declaration of Independence, which was written, of course, in 1776. In France, their landmark announcement of human rights was called the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, and it was written in 1789, so about a decade after the one in the United States. Both of these declarations made really important steps forward toward a more inclusive democracy. But both declarations contained glaring omissions. In both countries, white male landowners continued to enslave and exploit their fellow human beings. And astonishingly, these declarations of human rights made no mention of that obscene violation of the values that they were espousing in their documents, the values of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or liberty, equality, fraternity. And further, flying in the face of their noble assertions of human rights, both documents completely excluded women. So in France, after the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen came out, there was a woman who immediately recognized those omissions, and she wrote a rebuke and a correction to her country's declaration. Her response to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen was the Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen. And that's the text that we're going to discuss today. But first, let me introduce my reading partner for today's episode, Lindsay Olivest. Hi, Lindsay. Hello. So Lindsay has the same last name as I do. So listeners might guess that we are related. Lindsay is my oldest daughter. And I'm so, so excited to have you on this episode, Lindsay. First of all, your French is much better than mine is. And I really <laughs> struggle with pronouncing French. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. No, you have some French and I have zero. So please just correct me when I pronounce things terribly or don't know how to say things. Okay. And also you've taken some French history classes in the la in the last couple of years, which I've had so much fun learning from you about. And, and some of that French history is going to come into play today. So I'm really excited to have you teach us um, some context, some really important context that goes into this declaration. But first, can you just introduce yourself a little bit and tell listeners about who you are and some of the things that make you you? Of course. So I'm Lindsay Olivest, and I'm currently 20 years old. And I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I still consider that home. I love California. I love my cat Minerva and my family. And I also love singing. <laughs> singing in that order? And listening to music. No, not in that order, but just <laughs> those are some things that I do love. Um, yeah, and music too. And I'm currently a junior at Boston University studying history. And my main area of interest is early modern Europe, early modern being around the time of the Renaissance through just about pre-industrial Europe. I do not like industrialization. Um, I especially love social history, which comes into play a lot in the French Revolution. And social history basically focuses on the lived experiences of ordinary people in the past and how they relate to their social structures and their political systems. And that's what I find most interesting. So yeah, I did end up taking a class on the French Revolution and Napoleon, actually, too, the second semester of my freshman year, which is not that long ago. And so most of what I know about the French Revolution and the document we're studying today comes from that class that I took, which is an amazing history class. Yeah, and that's really what I enjoy studying. Hmm. Awesome. Thanks, Linz. Super excited to discuss this with you. This has been really fun to talk about, to read together and talk about. And so this will be a great discussion. But before we do that, before we dive into the document itself, 
Uh, I'll introduce us a little bit to Olamp de Gouge. And I should mention first off how this is spelled so listeners can make sense of the word I'm saying. It it looks like Olymp, like Mount Olympus. It's O-L-Y-M-P-E. But you do say Olamp, right? Lindsay? Yeah. Okay. Almost like oil lamp, but like a lamp. Oh, <laughs> you can also you lamp. can also say Olymp, like no one's gonna get mad at you. But yes, okay. it's Olamp, I think. I'll try to do it correctly. Yes, Olymp is what it looks like. And then de Gouge, so it's like D-E, like of, and then Gouge is G-O-U-G-E-S. And so I'll I'll talk a little bit about who she was, and then Lindsay, you can talk about the circumstances in which she wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Women. Does that sound good? Yes, sounds great. Okay. So Olympe de Gouges was born Marie Gouze, and that's spelled G-O-U-Z-E, in southwest France in 1748. Her family was middle class, so she was the daughter of a baker or possibly biologically the illegitimate daughter of a nobleman. And she claimed she was a daughter of a nobleman that, like, wouldn't claim her. But some people think that she made that story up, and I don't think it's been confirmed one way or the other. We know that she had some education in her youth because she was a really great writer, but she was married against her will at age 16 to one of her father's business associates. The following year, so when she was only 17, Marie gave birth to her only child, who is a son, and her husband died. So she became a widow and a mother when she was just 17. Four years later, in 1770, she moved to Paris and became involved in some of the intellectual salons in the city. She didn't want to be known and kind of pitied and limited as just being known as her late husband's widow. So upon arriving in Paris, Marie renamed herself. She took on her mother's middle name, which was Olympe. And she changed the spelling of her father's surname. So it had been Gouze, G-O-U-Z-E, but she changed it to De Gouge, like adding the day as like an aristocratic kind of flourish to make mm-hmm. her sound fancier, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and which I think is so bold and kind of awesome, right? She For her at that age, especially and at that time to just say, no, I'm, I am my own woman and I'm going to rename myself. I just love that she did that. Mm-hmm. So as she was attending these salons in Paris, she was introduced to well-known writers. And she also began a relationship with a wealthy businessman who supported her financially. But she never married again, and she actively rejected the institution of marriage. During this time, she also started a theater company and began writing her own plays. And these plays dealt with political issues such as the abolition of slavery, women's rights, and class inequality in France. And because of those plays and her increasing kind of the publicness of of her work, she was a target for harassment and criticism in Paris. She had really radical opinions. And also just simply because she was a female playwright. She was violently opposed to French colonization and slavery, and she wrote works called Help, Lindsay. How do you pronounce that? Just say it, looks... it in English. Just okay, say the in, English titles. In English, it's Reflections on the Rights of Black Men and the Slavery of Black People. And those works attracted fierce opposition. When the French Revolution began, de Gouge supported it. She was a strong advocate for economic and social change, especially regarding the abolition of slavery and women's rights, But she supported the idea of reforming the monarchy rather than abolishing it. And at the time, more radical groups wanted to execute King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, which, of course, they eventually did in 1793. So that position of kind of being a monarchist made her unpopular with the more radical groups, which will come up later as we talk about the end of her life. So, but first, before we get to that, in order to understand the text that she wrote, which was, of course, the Declaration of the Rights of Woman and the Female Citizen, we need to back up a little bit and understand the document that she was responding to, which was the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. And in order to understand that, we need to understand the basics of what the French Revolution was and why it happened. So, Lindsay, could you tell us a bit about that? Of course. 
So I think when people think of the French Revolution, they picture the end of the French Revolution, which is the Reign of Terror, which is when Robespierre was in charge and there were mass executions of just normal people all the time. And that is not how the French Revolution began. And there was a long buildup, like centuries of inequality that led to the French Revolution, which kind of started out at a maybe a more ordinary pace and then really picked up some crazy steam towards the end. But that's not what we're talking about today. So the French Revolution began largely as a consequence of an economic crisis and huge socioeconomic inequality, like many revolutions do. So the three estates system basically divided France's population into three distinct social groups. And the very top, the first estate, was the clergy, so priests of the Catholic Church, and even the Pope actually ranked above the king. So the Catholic Church was extremely important politically in France's system at the time. And the second estate was the nobility. So, you know, nobles who owned land, um, people who would basically like be in the court of the king. And then at the bottom was the third estate, which literally encompassed every single other person in France. And this was roughly 96% of the total population were members of the third estate. And they basically had no political power. There was actually some social mobility toward like when we started to get into the French Revolution, there were situations where like members of the third estate would have more money even than some low ranking nobles. And that actually caused some tension as well that led into this. But basically, the system was pretty rigid. And so in terms of the third estate, even 80% of the third estate were peasants. So the third estate was most of France's population, and most of them were extremely poor, and none of them had any political power. So a huge percentage of the population was in poverty, and this poverty was getting worse because of France's war debt, including debt from the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War that you've learned about in American history, maybe, and also inefficient farming and huge waves of inflation. All these things were just basically rolling into this huge snowball of unhappiness and poverty in France. And so after decades of this really awful situation, King Louis XVI, who nobody liked him anyway at this point, they thought he was weak and petty, um, but he finally called a meeting of the Estates General in 1789, which basically meant that representative members from each estate, so of each social group, were brought to Versailles, the famous fancy like noble estate out in outside of Paris. Um, they were all brought to Versailles for a meeting. And if you've ever studied the French Revolution before, you might remember the Jacobin lawyer and then dictator, Maximilien Robespierre. He was at the meeting representing the third estate. So actually, you can see also that Maximilien Robespierre was, he was a lawyer and he was really well known as like a political thinker at the time already. So again, that's the type of social mobility that kind of complicated the three estate system. Anyway, so at, for several weeks at this estate's general meeting, representatives of the third estate, which, remember, was the majority, the vast majority of France's population, most of whom were peasants, basically had to fight just to be included in the discussions and voting. They were kind of kicked out of most of the meetings and just were not included, even though they had been invited there. And after about a month of this happening, the third estate, so all those basically lower class people forcefully took over the proceedings and declared themselves the National Assembly, basically the new group in charge of France's government. So this was the first step towards the people delegitimizing the monarchy and seizing power for themselves. And it was very effective. And in response, the king locked the National Assembly out of the meeting because, I mean, he recognized their power now. And so the representatives who were rebelling got together on a handball court, you know, a court in Versailles where people would play sports and they wrote the famous tennis court oath which is clearly misnamed as they were on more of a handball court <laughs> but anyway <laughs> this tennis court oath was really important and it was basically a document that swore that the national assembly this group of the third estate who were coming together that they would not disband until they wrote a constitution for France and if you think you've heard of the tennis court oath before, it might be because you've seen this really famous painting by Jacques-Louis David, where mm -hmm. it's like all these men in this giant room, which, I, again, I think it might have been outside, but they're all kind of looking up and towards this paper that somebody's holding up. And it's a very hopeful and powerful and almost glamorous painting just in that everybody's mm -hmm. looking towards this paper as like the source of 
everything that's going to happen in the future. And it was a really important moment, especially because they established that they wanted a constitutional monarchy at this point with a constitution. Anyway, after this, rumors started flying around France that the king was going to crush the third estate, which, again, is 96% of the population, but they genuinely were afraid that he would try to basically kill them all, and they thought he would establish martial law to calm the country down. And this is what led to the famous storming of the Bastille, which you've probably heard about as well, and basically mass chaos ensued because of this panic. There were two weeks of straight-up mob violence, beginning with the decapitation via knife and head-piking of the governor, Delaunay, who I think was the governor of the Bastille. Yeah. Via knife? Like, that's really barbaric sounding. Yes. I learned that they had a sword and chose to use a knife instead. Like, you, you kind of can't overstate how furious and violent these people were at this point there was so much death in this period and it's really awful to think about but at the same time it's understandable I think like Mm -hmm. maybe not understandable to decapitate someone with a knife but understandable to have that much rage towards the system yeah maybe not excusable like it's you're not making an excuse for them but like when people get angry enough then things like that always have happened right Mm -hmm. i mean when people feel like they're in a cage and it's unjust their rage will just get bigger and bigger and bigger and then horrible horrible things happen yeah oh this is fascinating keep going this is i'm almost done (laughs) no no keep it yeah this is such important background for the story this is Mm -hmm. great Yeah, well, the reason for setting the stage with this much detail, because this is a lot of detail that I'm giving you, is just to illustrate that this was a country that was questioning its very foundations. The people were so furious about the structural inequalities in their society, and they genuinely wanted to tear it all down and build something new and better in its place. And again, this has happened all over the world so many times, and this is specifically how the French Revolution came about. So some of the changes they wanted to make to France's system were, one, abolishing feudalism. And not all of the peasants lived in feudal systems. Not all of them were serfs, but feudalism was very influential. It was still around in Europe, obviously, for even like a century after this in Russia. But feudalism was still a big problem in France. Um, A second change they wanted to make was abolishing tithes to the Catholic Church, which were... Obviously, if you didn't like the Catholic Church to begin with and you had to pay them a lot of money, you would be unhappy about that. And the Catholic Church's influence in France was so great at this time that basically everybody just kind of wanted to eliminate the influence of the church. There was no separation of church and state. The church ranked above the state, essentially. And the third thing they wanted to do, of many other things, was establish a meritocracy where basically every citizen would be eligible for any job they wanted And you could determine what you wanted to do with your life instead of being like basically prescripted these very strict social roles and jobs and everything was prescribed for you and nobody was happy with that. So they just wanted a more free society and everybody kind of had different ideas of what that would look like, as we'll see a little bit later. But those were three of their main goals. So to enshrine these principles in a document, much like America's Declaration of Independence and Constitution, the Marquis de Lafayette and some other men wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, which was published in 1789 as the preamble to the Constitution that came out two years later in 1791. And this declaration asserted that men have natural rights, which was a new concept that had kind of developed during the Enlightenment in the century previous to this. And they also said that all men's natural rights were equal to one another's rights. Basically, you don't have more natural rights because your father is a member of the nobility and my father is a baker. All men are created equal regardless of their social standing. And this document is considered hugely important in the history of human rights. And it was a big step forward for the oppressed citizens of France who were male and white. Not for everybody. It didn't acknowledge enslaved people at all. It didn't mention women at all. And I can just imagine how infuriating that would have been. Like, Mm -hmm. really? You're going to all this trouble of dismantling this power structure, and you're trying to make a new just society from scratch, and you completely forgot about 
more than half of the population. Like that is straight up embarrassing. And I would be so mad about that. And that happened in the United States too. And I am mad about it. Mm -hmm. I'm always angry about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not always angry, but I am always angry about that. (laughs) I know. I know. It is. It is infuriating. Yeah. Yep. So frustrating. Yeah, and that's how Alump de Gouge felt. So that's why she took the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, and she wrote a new document, and she called it the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen. And she took every single article, basically, of the original Declaration and applied it to men and women point for point. She published it in 1791, and immediately after she published it, many of the radicals of the revolution accused her of treason. The Jacobins, who were led by Robespierre, called her a royalist, which actually wasn't entirely untrue since, as we mentioned, de Gouge did support reforming the monarchy instead of abolishing it. She wanted these principles of equality to be guaranteed by a constitutional monarchy. And she had also dedicated the declaration to Marie Antoinette, whom everybody loathed. Like, that is a kind of bold and unpopular thing to do at this point, and honestly dangerous. But she did it, and she was tried for treason, and de Gouge was sentenced to execution by the guillotine. And Mm -hmm. when she was executed, her crime, according to the newspaper at the time, was that she had, quote, forgotten the virtues which belonged to her sex. And she was beheaded on November 3rd, 1793, at the age of 45. Yeah, that is so tragic. And it's kind of shocking to hear that that statement, right? That she had forgotten mm-hmm. the virtues which belonged to her sex. It just makes me sick. So obviously during the terror, they were executing tons of men too. And, mm-hmm. and like you said, that was just, I mean, it was r- super dangerous and a huge risk for her to dedicate the the declaration to Marie Antoinette. But I do think it's really telling that part of her perceived crime was that she had forgotten the virtues that belonged to her sex. And so how would those virtues have been defined back then and in France in the 18th century? I mean, if you can just imagine basically like your average 18th century woman did not work work like basically was just hardworking at home she was very Mm -hmm. chaste she was quiet she was submissive she was christian and i mean that was kind of true all over the western world at this point and Mm -hmm. honestly something else i learned in my class is that women conceived on average every 20 months so women Mm -hmm. were basically having children and working at home Mm -hmm. that's it yeah Just a kind of quiet and submissive life for them to lead. Mm -hmm. And very, very narrowly limited, obviously, to the home. And and those rules were all made for them by men, right? Mm -hmm. By the the political and the ecclesiastical, the religious norms that were completely determined by men. So, okay. So let's dive in to a few of the articles of the Declaration that we think are especially interesting or relevant. We only chose a few, but we'll just take turns reading the ones that we thought were the most salient or that stood out to us the most. So, Lindsay, do you want to take the first one? Mm-hmm. So I actually thought that Article 1 and Article 4 were fairly similar to each other, and they're both short, so I will read them together. Article 1. Woman is born free and remains equal to man in her rights. Social distinctions may only be based on common utility. Article 4. Liberty and justice consist in restoring to others all that belongs to them. Hence, the only limits to the exercise of the natural rights of woman are found in the perpetual male tyranny opposed to them. These limits must be reformed according to the laws of nature and reason. Um, So do you have any thoughts about those first articles, Mom? I do have some thoughts. And I, yeah, I'd love to hear what you think about it. But some things that jump out to me. So when you say in Article 1, as you read, woman is born free and remains equal to man in her rights. So to me, that just says like these are natural rights. And in Mm -hmm. in Article 4, she refers to natural rights as well. And I mean, obviously... As a person who grew up when and where I did, that was like, that's definitely a part of my moral framework, right? Like, I agree with that. If you just look at babies next to each other, 
the mm-hmm. thought that all human beings are born equal in value. They deserve equal protection under the law. They deserve not to be discrimination, discriminated against based on a characteristic that they can't change, right? That's just obvious, but that was new to them, right? This is during the Enlightenment it was really during the Enlightenment that men came to see themselves as having natural rights that they're mm-hmm. born with, right? Mm-hmm. So that was, that was, it's not new to us. That just is a given to me. But to them, that was a radical, revolutionary new way of seeing human beings. Because as you described so well, they were coming from a feudal system where it, I mean, people just regarded themselves and each other as belonging to a certain caste. And that was the natural order of things, right? Okay, mm-hmm. but I want to play the devil's advocate because I was just thinking, like, how could anybody argue with this? And one thing that came to my mind is that they would say, well, who gives, you know, if we're taking the the babies again, like looking at babies and who gives them those rights, those natural rights. In our Declaration of Independence, in our country, it says that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, of course. So that creator that endowed men with those rights is the Judeo-Christian God, right? The God of the Bible. And in one biblical account, Eve is created in the image of God, So she might have the same individual value as Adam does, free and equal to man in rights, like Degouge says, and having the same nature as a child of the divine, right? Mm -hmm. But in the other biblical account in Genesis, she's created from Adam's rib. She's named by Adam. She's secondary. She's a helpmeet to Adam. And, And I mean, even though the first account is you know, better for women because it says she's created in God's image. Even in that case, in both cases, she is eventually made subject to Adam after she disobeys God and she causes the fall of man. Mm -hmm. And so they don't have the same rights. They don't. Right. So so people what I'm saying is, I guess, that I can see people saying, well, there's a social distinction made between man and women based on Adam and Eve. And that is, that's God's law that women should be subjugated because that's in the, the sacred text, right? Mm-hmm. And so they might say that Degouge's attempt to ap- apply the enlightenment logic of natural rights to a woman is futile and it's sacrilegious. And it's just like, it's wrong. It's incorrect because God created this system of, of women's subjugation not human beings. And I just mentioned this because I've heard, you know, real men in my actual life say, yeah, you know, I can see how this must be frustrating to you as a woman. You know, I I have sympathy. I've literally heard this. I'm thinking of real men that I will not say their names, but like, yes, I, they have sympathy, but they're like, you know, I don't know why God says that men should have you know, the right to preside over women, but God said it should be this way. And who am I to question God? Okay. So my question to you, I guess, is that's, that's kind of the American way of looking at it where it's like, well, they're endowed by their creator with the rights they have. But in France, like you said, they were, they were really making a conscious move to distance themselves from the church and they were really establishing a secular society. Right. So they, they did not really want to be grounded in the Bible the way Americans thought of doing. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, Well, yes, because before the revolution, the kings of France, King Louis XVI and all the kings before him, claimed that they had the divine right of kings. Like many other Mm -hmm. countries have also had rulers who will claim this. Um, Mm -hmm. But they said that their power as king came from God. And Again, the Pope also like ranked above the king in this system. And so the political system was really taking all its cues from the Catholic Church. And the French people hated that. And they were deliberately divorcing themselves from the Catholic Church at this point. And actually, later in the revolution, during the reign of terror, this went way extreme, like extremely anti-religion. And the Jacobins started tearing down French cathedrals and converting them into temples Whoa. of reason 
and they tried to start their own religion, which was based on kind of worshiping human, like human capabilities, reason and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And that, again, was very extreme. And you can still see the remnants of that in France today, at least in the buildings, like there's a public presence of that. But um, yeah, even in 1791, the French people were heading in that direction. And we're just honestly really tired of the Catholic Church. Mm. So that's okay. So that does answer my question that when when in in France that they say people have natural rights, they leave out that phrase that we have in our declaration that says they are endowed by their creator with those rights. France does leave that out. So that's not a battle that she necessarily mm -hmm. is fighting in her document. Yes. I mean, I can't speak as to France's political system today but in this document at least um yeah they deliberately left out the church and were deliberately stripping it of its power yeah so that's better Uh, honestly right i mean at least for women (laughs) yeah separation of church and state is better for women historically um take notes utah (laughs) (laughs) no honestly are you (laughs) I Honestly. know, I know, yeah. I, I laugh, but I know you're being serious. Utah will not pass the ERA exactly. along with all those states in the South in exactly. the in the Bible Belt. Yeah. Bible Belt, yeah, still very relevant. Okay, what stood out to you from these articles, Lance? Um, the part where she says that social distinctions may only be based on common utility. Uh, this was specifically in reaction to the prior system, which was a caste system of clergy, nobility, and peasants. She did not want social distinctions to be based on those kind of arbitrary like basically what your job was like that is not like nobility are not inherently better than peasants and this was a huge step forward but again what defines a person's common utility because it could be argued that the labor of enslaved people both men and women was needed for common utility So the Mm -hmm. social distinction that restricted their freedoms was based on society's common good, kind of like what you were talking about, how natural rights can be interpreted to say that inequality is natural. Common Mm -hmm. utility, who gets to decide that? You know, it could also be argued that reproductive capacity of women, both white and black, free and enslaved, was needed in order to keep populating and to rear children. So people can argue that the common utility is keeping those groups in subjugation. Okay, yeah. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting that you brought up, Linz, when we were talking about this before, is you're like, oh, yeah, that just comes from the Greeks. That comes Mm -hmm. from Plato and Aristotle, right? I mean, that they had that concept of a certain, there are types of people that are made for a certain telos, right? Or Mm -hmm. a certain type of work. And that was definitely, especially with Aristotle, he thought of, you know, women as like unambiguously inferior to to men mm-hmm. and that was just their place that's natural their common utility is to just be breeders for humans right yes and yes and he said that people who were enslaved just had like i think the translation is like a slavish quality about them that yeah. they were just inherently Awful inferior and like basically their only utility in the society was to be enslaved or that women's only utility was to do that so again if you have people deciding what is useful and what the social categories should be then you can say oh actually you have to be this just because it's natural like that's just who you are right Right. And yeah, and I st- and you do still hear echoes of this. I've literally mm-hmm. heard this argument by friends of mine too, like really smart, really ethical, good-hearted people, but I one friend in particular just ca- ca- really, you know, often argues that that you know, like what will happen if women are not taught that they have to stay home and have babies and raise children if mm-hmm. if they're not taught that they have to do that, they won't do that and then like he literally has worries that the human species will die out. They won't have children, which I'm just like, this is not that far off from the handmaid's tale. No, like it's, it's really not right. Like the women's common utility to quote mm-hmm. Deguj again, like the common utility is their reproductive capacity. They're just a womb with legs, basically. Yeah, that's their utility in society. And so and OK, one more thing is I read not the whole thing, but I read some of Charles Darwin's The Descent of Man recently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's discouraging too, because like, I'm just thinking this is so 
I'm feeling a little demoralized, honestly, (laughs) because obviously, like, so we just talked about religion. Like, if you're appealing to your religious text for, you know, a claim of equality, like, if I as a woman am saying, like, I, I promise I am equal in dignity and rights and value to a man. Well, I can't appeal to my religious text, as we just talked about. And so Mm -hmm. then, okay, I'll appeal to like the the Greek philosophers and to utility. Oh, crap. Well, if I appeal to that, then they just say, no, you're smaller. You're the one with the womb. So Mm -hmm. you're the breeder and we get to decide that. And then even if you appeal to reason, like, okay, well, then let's turn to Darwin. Darwin wasn't bound by those religious norms. And he was just you know, supposedly looking at scientific evidence objectively. And he he thought that women were naturally inferior, too. And that was evidenced by, you know, there's smaller bodies and mm-hmm. smaller brains. And so even an appeal to natural rights can be problematic. And it's hard to get people on board that that means that everyone has the same rights to determine their own lives. Because, again, like all of this decision-making power is still in the hands of men, whether they're scientists or philosophers or politicians or priests or whatever it's it's just women I feel like I just have this visual of me like looking up at a judge who's at the bench with a gavel in his hand and he can make the ruling about whether I am equal Mm -hmm. in you know in value and rights to him and it just oh I honestly like don't even know what to it's just so discouraging and to feel like well what can I even appeal to it's exhausting (laughs) Honestly, like it's it's so exhausting having to appeal to other people and say, like, I honestly don't know how to convince you of this. But um, if you can't see this as being wrong, I don't really know. Actually, this reminds me a few weeks ago or actually about a week ago, I was I'm part of the Undergraduate Philosophy Association at BU And we recently started a Discord channel and somebody brought up Jordan Peterson in the Discord channel. Mm, I didn't tell you this. I haven't told you the story yet, mom. But No, you have um, not. It was really late at night and he was like, has anybody heard of Jordan Peterson? And I, I'm the secretary, (laughs) so I felt the need to be somewhat professional. I said, (laughs) "Uh, yes, I I was not. But I said, yes, I, I have heard of Jordan Peterson. I strongly dislike him based on his political views. And this Mm -hmm. guy was really pushing back. And I I get really just like honestly upset when people talk about Jordan Peterson. I genuinely Mm -hmm. loathe him. And he I said like, oh, he's well, he's a gender essentialist. He's a misogynist. There are all these things he said. And he said, like, can you elaborate on that? Like, I'm not convinced. And honestly, it was Mm -hmm. so late at night and I was so frustrated that I just said, if you have read enough Jordan Peterson and can't see that he's extremely misogynistic then I don't want to spend my time trying to convince you of that. Like I, Mm -hmm. it is not worth my time. If you can't already see this man for who he is and how these messages are hurtful, then I don't know where to appeal to that. I don't want to waste my time trying to convince you of this. Like Mm -hmm. it's exhausting. And when people just can turn to all these different arguments and say, well, actually this, and oh, actually religion says this, and you know, science says this, it's, Honestly, sometimes it's not worth my time trying to convince them. And mm-hmm. that is just mm-hmm. so, like you said, demoralizing. Mm-hmm. Anyway. It can be. It can be so <laughs> yeah. demoralizing. And to to people who are not willing to, to, to think critically about it and to examine, like take a step back and, mm-hmm. and empathize and step into someone else's shoes. Okay, which reminds me that one thing that I did think of that is helpful to like, I don't know about if it would have helped with this person that couldn't see it in Jordan Peterson's work, but I mean, maybe in a, in a more broad sense, having a philosophical discussion about like the way society should be set up for someone who is really kind of unapologetically asserting that men should preside over women, which now in our time, really, you find it a lot more in, you know, conservative religious Mm -hmm. environments. Although, like you said, Peterson is secular. He's not that, even yeah. really religious. So it it's not just confined to conservative religion, but it is mostly, it's most overt there, I feel like. But anyway. Yeah, agreed. So I thought of this thought experiment, and this does, I think, could maybe help people to see who are not seeing it. 
in a frustrating conversation. So it's this thought experiment called the veil of ignorance, which is just a really simple method of determining the degree of morality in any given policy or practice. And so what you do is as you're considering whether or not to implement, you know, a policy or practice in a society, you imagine all the implications for every single member of society. And so it it kind of, so the veil of ignorance is this imaginary, you know, if you, if, if you picture like, if you are a soul who has not yet come to earth and there's this veil and you're sitting at a table deciding, okay, so we're going to construct, we're, we're going to architect this society. Let's say we're going to create the caste system in India, for example. Okay, so we're going to have all these different layers. We're going to have all these different levels. And each, you know, at each level, they will have certain jobs. They'll have certain rights and privileges and things that they can and cannot do, right? So this caste gets mm-hmm. to do this, but can't do that. So the veil of ignorance means on one side of it, when you're deciding what society is going to be like, you don't know when you pass through the veil and you are born into your little body in that country, let's say just for example that it's India, when you're born there, you do not know which level of the caste system you will be born in. And so that's the way you can determine if it's a just system or not. If you would be equally willing to be born at on any of those strata, then you know it's a just system. But if you're if you're planning the system and you say like, oh crap, like no, I don't want to be at the bottom one, <laughs> mm-hmm. then you know it's not just. You have to be willing to inhabit any of those bodies in that country or, you know, in that religion or in that classroom or whatever. You have to be willing to be anybody. If you're willing to be anybody, you know it's just. And if you're not, then it's not. That may be helpful. I don't mm-hmm. know if that comes up with somebody who is defending a more overt patriarchal structure. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Let's keep going. Lindsay, what's another article that you, that stood out to you from the declaration? All right. Next, I will read article six and article 13. Article six reads, the law should be the expression of the general will. All citizens, female and male should participate in person or through their representatives in its formation. It should be the same for all. Female and male citizens, being equal in the eyes of the law, should be equally eligible for all public positions of rank, offices, and employment according to their ability and with no other distinction than those of their virtue and their talent. And Article 13 reads, The contributions of women and men to the maintenance of public authority and to administrative costs are equal. Women share in all the drudgery and all the painful tasks. Therefore, they must have the same share in the distribution of posts, employment, offices, rewards, and responsibilities. So these two articles are basically what I, when I mentioned earlier that they wanted a meritocracy, this is what they wanted, or this is what de Gouge wanted as well. And she's just rewriting this to include women because men wanted this for themselves, you know. The, all the cobblers and bakers said, oh, we, we want the opportunity to do whatever job we want, right? Hmm. And so Daguj is just saying, yes, but also include women in this. Like, women, we are willing to do all of the hard work that men are willing to do. We will share in all the drudgery and all the painful tasks. So give us the same share in employment and offices and rewards and responsibilities. She's saying, like, please just honestly include us in in the work, in society, we don't want to be relegated to staying at home. We're willing to work hard. You just need to acknowledge that we can work hard with you. So that's why I like these articles because she's saying, mm. you know, sometimes people will say women don't want to be equal. They don't mm-hmm. want to have to work as hard as men. Like men do all these difficult things that women would never want to do. And or mm-hmm. like um, what I one thing I hate is when people say like, oh, if if women and men are equal, does that mean like I can punch you? Because people say like you shouldn't punch girls. I'm like, well, you shouldn't punch anybody. But mm-hmm. yeah, okay, I I should be able to fight. Like you can punch me. It's not because I'm a woman and I'm weaker. <laughs> like if you want to be a jerk and punch somebody, then I guess you shouldn't just not punch women because you think they're weaker. Like honestly, just <laughs> just treat us the same. Like we have the same abilities in general, and then just individually look at our skills and talent and whatever but don't just mm-hmm. treat women as not being hardworking. anyway mm-hmm. that, that's why I like these articles what do you think mm. oh yeah that's such a great example I have to say too stone so 
Lindsay's uh, youngest sibling, Stone, is in jujitsu. And they're like, there are actually a lot of girls in his jujitsu class and they wrestle hard. And it's Mm -hmm. so awesome. So to your point about like, don't, no human should punch any human who does not want to be punched. And (laughs) like, that's, that's the rule. And then if there's somebody who's, just be nice. Just be good. But then, like, if you're in a jujitsu class, like the girls put on their gloves and they're and everybody's wearing gloves and everybody's wearing a protective, you know, thing on their head. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and now is an appropriate context in which you should punch the other person who's saying, "Punch me as hard as you can. I'm here to train." Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Like, yeah. So just just to that point about punching, but I also thought of this as another thing that you and I talk about because and you uh, called it out earlier about the Equal Rights Amendment because we. We watched Mrs. America recently, and I was watching also this clip of Betty Friedan and Phyllis Schlafly debating each other in 1975. And I I really couldn't believe when I watched that clip of Friedan and Schlafly debating each other, I thought of these articles from this declaration. It was it was just like they took the, the articles right out of this document and just recycled them. And it reminded me of Gerda Lerner again, where she talks about women just just reinventing the wheel. We just keep having these conversations over and over again, partly mm-hmm. because we don't learn what has happened in the past. And partly because if the governing body remains all or mostly male, then they really can't be expected to look out for the rights of women. We all only see the world through the eyeballs that we see through and like through our own experience. And so mm-hmm. some men might you know, ha- maybe they have a lot of sisters or they their mom talked to them a lot and they might kind of have more women more on their radar if they get into a position of, of power, but most men will not. And so if it's, if it's not written into a country's constitution, then the laws can change depending on whichever man is in charge, right? And we're seeing that right now with reproductive rights. It, if it's, and, and with the Taliban taking back over in Afghanistan, all of this this ground that has been covered and all of all of the progress that has been made can be undone so fast if it's not in a constitution. And that's why mm-hmm. I think Degouge was so smart and so ahead of her time in immediately wanting to rewrite the declaration. And it is, it's just astounding in our country that 230 years after Degouge, America cannot even get an amendment to the constitution guaranteeing that women can't be discriminated on the basis of sex. It's just really unbelievable to me. Mm-hmm. So, but yes, that, so that's what I thought of to your point of, you know, women want to do that hard work. I guess that's why I thought of the ERA too, is because I know that was one, of, like you brought up the argument, women saying like, protect our privileges. We don't want to be in, we don't want the burden of being involved in government. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's uh-huh. not a good argument. Go ahead. Well, yeah. And in that video that you mentioned, the debate between Shafley and Friedan, Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't it that debate didn't it kind of end really poorly for for dan because phyllis Schlafly said like but what about the draft women don't want to be drafted right. into vietnam and for dan was, right. didn't respond to that well very sadly but but like that mm-hmm. argument like oh women shouldn't be drafted well first of all i think there shouldn't ever be a draft <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just you know but okay if you have to draft people why not draft women like i'm i'm very outspokenly anti-military but it shouldn't just be men fighting like just because i don't know like we have to protect women like if a woman can prove herself physically capable then i don't see what the Mm -hmm. issue is there Mm -hmm. um and that happened in the 70s with vietnam and with the era people saying oh we can't draft women that was like a huge stopping point for them and that's just what degouge is saying again like if women are willing to share in the drudgery then let them right yeah right Okay, one more article that I wanted to share is Article 12, and it says this, quote, Guaranteeing the rights of woman and the female citizen requires the existence of a greater good. This guarantee must be instituted for the advantage of all and not for the private benefit of those on whom it is conferred. What did, what did you think of that, Lens? Um, Yeah, honestly, sometimes... I think people don't understand. They say like, oh, why should we make this change? Like, will it really benefit everybody? And Olympic is just saying, yes, it will benefit everybody. All of society benefits when everybody's equal. Yeah, totally. I. It makes me think that she's 
she's responding. I'm guessing she's having conversations with in her salons with people that she knows, too. And it makes me think she's responding to men that she knows probably who are worried that women are going to end up having more rights than they do. Right. And that those conversations are still happening today, like, oh, the pendulum's going to swing too far, which is a legitimate and valid question always to bring up, especially we just talked about the French Revolution and people decapitating each other with knives, you know, mm-hmm. like <laughs> the pendulum swing is a, is a legitimate um, thing to always have in mind. It's a fair concern. But at the same time, when they wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Man, were they being super careful to prove that lifting up the common man would also benefit the aristocracy? Like, don't worry, aristocracy, you're be, you'll be okay. You can keep your shoe mm-hmm. collection or whatever. Like, <laughs> and I just, I just uh-huh. feel like I've been accused personally of, like, even on the podcast of like, oh, you bend over backwards too much to not offend men and reassure mm. men that they're, you know, don't worry, you're going to benefit from egalitarianism too. You're going to mm-hmm. benefit from women having more rights and patriarchy harms men too. Yeah. And I stand by that approach because I do love men and because I really do believe that egalitarianism benefits everyone. And I do believe that patriarchy hurts everyone. And you know me, Linz, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a pacifist and I, I love people and I don't want anyone to get hurt. Mm -hmm. But I do think that sometimes people in power are just, they are going to find it uncomfortable to rebalance things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I do need to be more okay with ruffling people's feathers. And so to Degouge, I would just say, Olamp, (laughs) Olamp Degouge. I would say, don't worry, like women are in no danger, especially in the 1700s. Women are in no danger of becoming overly privileged, right? (laughs) Yes. French women are not even going to, I was thinking about this from the time she wrote this French woman, French Mm -hmm. women would not get the right to vote until 1944. Yeah. That's 155 more years. So for her to, to be like, oh, don't worry, men, this is just like... You know, this is going to be for your advantage, too. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you don't need to worry about that. Like women have such a long way to go before they even get to equity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, sadly, I not necessarily. Well, yes, I think it's sad. People who are oppressed, there is a balance between appealing to their the people who rank above them or, you know, who say they rank above them, you have Mm -hmm. to appeal or you won't be listened to. Right. In some situations. And obviously there are, yeah, like you said, that balance is just hard. You know, Mm -hmm. I I want to be sensitive. I want to appeal and say, like, here, I can help you understand this. And then sometimes, like with the Jordan Peterson guy, I say, actually, I I'm tired of talking to you. You're a jerk. I, right. You are not going to understand. I'm not going to appeal to you. You're not worth my time. I'm just going to mm-hmm. fight this and ignore you. Like, there's right. a balance there. And I think in 18th century France, um, in France, she couldn't afford to not be mm-hmm. careful. And she mm-hmm. had to say, like, this will benefit everybody because I like we've talked about she was already being accused of being radical when really like politically she was radical and asking for women's rights and the abolition of slavery but not even in terms of the revolution like mm-hmm. i think she really had to be really careful and that is what's sad yeah yeah that's true uh okay do you want to just take it away from there um yes so Another article we're going to read is Article 26, which says, Any society that is without guaranteed rights and separation of powers is without a constitution. A constitution is void if the majority of individuals comprising the nation has not cooperated in its drafting. And when she's writing this in 1791, the constitution of 1791, which followed the preamble, which is the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of Citizen, um, I don't know if I made that clear that they the declar or the constitution that they ended up publishing came out the same year as this. And so mm-hmm. basically she's publishing this at the same time that the constitution, which was dead on arrival anyway, because the revolution had progressed a lot farther than they had anticipated in those two years. But that constitution that they published this year was already all just completely written by men. And so mm-hmm. she's saying like in this revolution, you are writing all these things that are radical and revolutionary and it's all men and I 
think that's void. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What that makes me think of is that famous Abigail Adams quote that's on the the women's monument in Boston where mm-hmm. we always go when I'm in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I I wrote it down actually because I thought I might want to share it. So I'm going to. So this is Abigail Adams writing to her husband, John Adams, who has gone to the Constitutional Convention. Again, you know, on this side of the Atlantic Ocean a little bit earlier, but France and and the United States had parallel experiences in many ways. And Mm -hmm. she says, so she says to John, and by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That's the end of that quote. I've, and I think that's exactly what Deguja is saying, right? She's mm-hmm. saying this: the Constitution is void because women don't have any representation in it. And we won't hold ourselves bound by a constitution where we didn't get to participate in making the laws that we're, that we're bound by. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. And honestly, that quote makes me wish there had been a women's rebellion, you know, because she, <laughs> yeah. she said, John, please put the women in the declaration and in the constitution. And he didn't. And yeah. she said, uh, if you don't do this, we are determined to foment a rebellion. And I wish that had happened. <laughs> yeah, that's I, true. To be honest, they probably w- would have been shut down real fast because uh, time and time again, women have tried to speak up for themselves and they're just ignored. But I, mm-hmm. you know, like, I honestly wish sometimes that women had had the opportunity to just like, honestly fight, like, literally fight a war for their rights, because mm. that's the extent of the oppression that they have faced, you know, right now, mm-hmm. maybe a lot better than it has been in the past but still like it's gotten this far and I wish at some point there had been a woman who just ended it all I wish we could have done that (laughs) yeah Um, well one thing that will be really cool is later in the podcast when we get into the 19th century and we talk about suffrage Mm -hmm. and especially in England like some of those women actually did use some really I mean actually violent and some I'm not advocating violence again I'm a Quaker I'm a (laughs) I'm a pacifist but they actually did they used a lot of not just demure and like oh please please remember the ladies right like there were bombs there were there were there was stuff thrown in people's faces somebody went up to Winston Churchill and whipped him with a horse whip in like 1909 um so, yeah, we'll talk about suffrage later. And and there were people. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, like chaining themselves to fences and mm-hmm. going on hunger strikes. And yeah. there was kind of it kind of did amount to a war at some point. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, France, not until 1944. Unbelievable. No. So very late to the game. Yeah. yeah. OK, well, that brings us to the end of the conversation, Linz. As we wrap up, is there a takeaway or one last passage from the document that you want to share? Yeah, I think I'll actually end with a quote from the postscript of the Declaration, um, which really resonates today, just as it did 230 years ago. This is something I feel very strongly about, and I think she puts it really well. Note that she uses this word toxin, which is spelled T-O-C-S-I-N, not T-O-X-I-N, and it means an alarm bell. So she's not talking about poison. She's talking about an alarm bell. Um, And it reads, Woman, awake. The toxin of reason is sounding across the universe. Acknowledge your rights. Nature's powerful empire is no longer hemmed in by prejudice, fanaticism, superstition, and lies. The torch of truth has dispersed all the clouds of folly and usurpation. Enslaved man has multiplied his strength and has needed yours to break his chains. But once free, he has become unjust to his companion. O women, women, when will you cease to be blind? What advantages has the revolution brought you? Still greater contempt, still more overt disdain. 
you must courageously counter these vain pretensions of superiority with the power of reason. You must unite under the banner of philosophy, deploy all your energy of character, and you will soon see these arrogant men not groveling at your feet in servile adoration, but proud to share with you the treasures of the supreme being. Whatever barriers are placed before you, it is in your power to overcome them. All you need is the will. Thank you so much, Lindsay. That was the perfect way to to end the episode. I'm so <laughs> impressed with you. And that was so, so fun to talk about this. I just adore you. I also admire you. And I'm really, really grateful that you were willing to do this with me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Mom. Um, this project, it's been so fun seeing you put this podcast together. I am just in awe of what you have done in compiling all these great works together, None of, most of which I had not read before. And that's why this project is important to me. I just love talking with you and I have learned so much from you. So thank you for having me on this episode. Thanks, Linz. And as our collective last word, actually, let's just, in honor of Olympe de Gouges, invite listeners to look up whether your state has passed the Equal Rights Amendment. It's been 245 years since the United States Constitution left women out, so it's time to put them in. Mm -hmm. So next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be discussing The Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary Wollstonecraft takes the torch that was passed to her by Olympe de Gouges, and she writes one of the great works on women's rights. She's famous for engaging in a vigorous debate with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and she's also famous for being the mother of Mary Shelley, who's the author of Frankenstein. So if you can, read up on The Vindication of the Rights of Women. It's really an essential text in women's history. And then join us for the discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Thank you.